Psalm 29, verses 1 to 11. Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. The, the voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders, the Lord, over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon to skip like a calf, and Syrian like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes a deer give birth, and strips the forest bare. And in his temple all cry glory. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as king forever. May the Lord give strength to his people. May the Lord bless his people with peace. Well, good morning. Good morning. Good morning, John. I feel compelled to say Guten Morgen this morning. Uh, very poor translation, I'm sure, of my English into, into German, but there's a few German folks here with us in the congregation. It's good to have you with us. Also visitors from the Netherlands, returning students, and of course regulars here with us. I hope that you find your time uh, with us as we look at Psalm 29, particularly encouraging. Um, as an aside, I, I don't know, did anyone go last week and look up what their name meant after Kevin's analogy last week? Um, for those of you who missed it, uh, Kevin had been given a, a key ring that was full of, uh, what shall we say, self-affirmations uh, about his name, that he was handsome, gentle, uh, pleasant to be around, endearing, all of these things. Uh, I looked at my name, and uh, it comes from a Germanic name. Uh, my name's Derek, and uh, it said that the name Derek is a good ruler of people. I was I was happy with that. And then uh, it also said that it became popular in the 17th century, and it was popularized by a guy called Derek of Thyrun, who was a famous hangman. Um, and that's where the name of the gallows come from and the offshore crane that we now know is called an oil derrick. So uh, thanks, mum and dad. Um, we're going to spend some time now looking at Psalm 29, but before we do that, let's just commit our time to the Lord in prayer, shall we? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to gather together today, to gather together as people from all nations, people from all backgrounds, people from all walks of life. And we thank you that you are a God who is interested in the most minuscule detail of each and every one of our lives. And Father, as we come to consider this psalm this morning, we pray that you would be present with us as we learn from your word, as we learn more of your character, as we grow to a deeper understanding of who you are. Lord, we pray that you would speak through your word to us this morning in your precious son's name. Amen. If you have a, a Bible with you this morning, it'd be helpful if you have it open at our Psalm, Psalm 
29. We're going to be considering the psalm following our, our, our series. We did the God Who Shepherds last week, and this week we're going to do the God Who Speaks. But before we get into our text this morning, I was wondering if you could indulge me just for a moment. And I would like you to try and recall to memory, in your mind's eye, the worst storm that you've ever been party to. Now, I know some folks here work offshore. They've maybe been at sea. I know some folks live or have lived in more tropical environments. I know that some folks come from areas of the globe that are more susceptible to natural disaster. So everyone's experience will be different. But I want you to try and recall to memory the very worst storm that you've ever witnessed or been party to. Now, to do that, it might help if you close your eyes. Okay, I'll I'll trust that you haven't fallen asleep just yet. But please just indulge me as I go through some of these words. Try and bring to mind the worst storm that you've ever been party to. And what I want you to do is concentrate on how it felt, how it sounded, how it looked. Think, perhaps, about the awesome cracking of thunder. That bright, overwhelming radiance of lightning. Maybe the weight of the wind on your home. The bending of the trees. The high pitch and roll of the sea. The crashing of the wave over the bow of the vessel or over the harbour wall. Maybe daylight has been swallowed by dark clouds or obscured by heavy snow or sand. Maybe you can feel the intensity of the rain taste the salt water or the grit of the sand. Maybe you can feel the ground beneath you moving. How do you feel? Do you feel out of control? Were objects moving around you? Were you all at sea? Were you overwhelmed? Were you gripped in fear or amazement? Were you struck by awesomeness? Where was your mind What did you see? What did you hear? What did you feel? And whatever your mind's eye cast up for you just now, whatever you saw, whatever you heard, whatever you felt, whatever you remembered, irrespective of the intensity or the magnitude of that experience, it was but a meager picture of the glory of God. That's Psalm 29. A psalm surely written by David in a storm, whether literal or metaphorical. He does this great job of capturing the power of the storm. But that storm that he captures in written form immediately takes David to a point of reflection. And that point of reflection is the voice of God, the glory of God, the presence of God. Because a storm really is a finger pointing toward the God of glory. And although this is the poetic retelling of a storm, and a storm that immediately draws David to the heart of God, this is a glory psalm. And it really is, in its poetic form, a logical form of reasoning. For the psalm points toward all created things, to all things that have glory and awe. And he's saying this, these things all point toward God. 
God speaks through this psalm of who he is through all aspects of glory. There are three points in this psalm that are very tight and instructive and practical for us. And what we see in the psalm is God speaking through his glory. Speaking through his glory in three senses. We see him speaking through his glory that is hardwired into us. We see him speaking through his glory in of himself. And then we see him speaking through his glory in his glory of grace. And we will run through them in that order. And I'm going to speak a lot this morning about glory because we see that theme running right through. But what I want us to be cognizant with is that God's voice is present in all the aspects of glory that we are going to be considering this morning. And because we are speaking about his glory and speaking about his voice, this psalm of Psalm 29 is without a shadow of doubt pertinent for our lives today. Because this psalm speaks into the deep struggle that is going on within every one of our hearts this morning. Let's begin. Look at verses 1 and 2. What do they say? Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. When the psalm says, ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings, I don't think it means just angels, those who are in heaven. You'll probably see a footnote if you have your Bible open this morning, where in the Hebrew translation it says, O sons of God, in replace of O heavenly beings. And there is a bit of a translation debate as to what is the right translation. Is it heavenly beings or is it sons of God? Is this psalm addressing angels and the people of heaven or is it addressing people here and now? And the answer is probably both. You see, there's something that you and I have in common with angels and it is this. We are hardwired for glory. We don't live by instinct. We're attracted to glory, are we not? That's why when we hear a wonderful piece of music and it sends a shiver down your spine, for me it's, oh, come thou fount. We're hardwired for glory. That's when you celebrate that big match-winning minute in the 90th minute of the game when Aberdeen win at Pataudry on the odd occasion. It feels glorious. When you win a race for the first time, it feels glorious because we're hardwired for glory. Maybe for you, your, your perception's different. Maybe it's a well-prepared meal and you think about someone that's brought together all these ingredients and then you can feel all these different textures and tastes on your tongue. We're hardwired for glory. If you want some other examples, there's a great book written by Louis Giglio. It's called Wired, and it's particularly good for students and teens. This psalm says, ascribe to the Lord, O sons of God, O heavenly beings, glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. We're hardwired for glory. 
But what have we been commanded to do here? If we're hardwired for glory, if we're attracted to glory, if this is what's innate within us, why do we have to be encouraged? Why do we have to be cajoled? Why do we have to be pointed towards ascribing greatness to the Lord? Why do we have to be commanded to recognize, to worship, to live in the light of glory of God? Well, here it is. Sin has done something dangerous in our hearts. There, in our hearts, is a glory war. It's a war of glory. And whatever glory rules our hearts will set the agenda for the way that we live our lives. Sin does two things. The first of which is this. It produces in us a perverse ability to be blind to the glory of God. Think about Isaiah 6. It says the world, the world is filled with God's glory. I wonder, did we see that glory this week? As we looked around at the created world, were we filled with a deep sense of God's glory? Were we blown away by the majesty of our creator? Were we? Or was it just for us when we opened the curtains and we looked out on creation, just the start of another day? Impacted by our daily schedules, the looking after of kids, the laundry, meals to be prepared, teams meetings at work, endless mundane conversations. Did we live blind to the glory of God? Or when we pulled back that curtain, did we marvel? It's a sad thing, isn't it? That we get up every morning and we're not blown away by the glory of God. It's a sad thing that our hearts are diluted, that our minds are distracted from the glory of God every morning. But there's another thing. Sin causes us to replace the glory of God with other glories. So that the glory that rules our heart, the glory that commands our life, the glory that becomes the basis of the decisions we make and the actions that we take and the words that we speak is not the glory of God. I'm sure you can think of countless examples as to where your glory lies. Your job, your career. Maybe for us it's our friendship circles, our lifestyle, our material being, our studies. The glories are numerous, they're countless. And in of themselves, they may not be harmful. But when they dilute and crowd out the glory of God in our heart, then they do become an issue. There is one example that we read off in Scripture. In John chapter 6, if you turn to me, turn with me to, to, to that text, it's of course the famous miracle of Christ, the miracle where he performs the feeding of the 5,000. And if you're to look at verse 15 of uh, that chapter, you'll see there that the crowd pursues Jesus after he has performed the miracle, for they want to make him a king. It says this, Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him a king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. 
Perceiving that they were coming to take him by force to make him a king, Jesus withdrew to the mountain by himself. He withdrew. Why? These people recognize who he is, do they not? They recognize him as king. Why would Jesus run away and hide? Why would he withdraw by himself? Look to verse 25. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come over here? Listen to what Jesus answers. Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your full of loaves. Do not labor for food that perishes, but for the food that endures eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. Now here's what Jesus is saying. He's saying that there are two types of glory that exist, only two types. There's sign glory that points toward God, and then there's ultimate glory, which is the glory of God. And Jesus is saying to this group of people that ask him why he withdrew, is the reason that I withdrew from you is that you didn't actually see the sign. You only wanted me to be your king because you had had your bellies filled with loaves. Your idea is an endless buffet of food. And then he says to him, this miracle that I've performed is not about you having your belly full, but it's about you being signposted to the glory of God. And it's that glory that you're to aspire to. And Jesus goes on and says, unless you drink my flesh, sorry, eat my flesh and drink my blood, you will not enter the kingdom. Now hear this. What Jesus is saying is that every physical glory that we experience is ordained by God to point us to the true glory that can only be found in relationship with God. It's only that glory that is actually glorious. And it's only that glory that will ever satisfy our hearts. That physical glory, those, those grossy, gro- glories of creation won't satisfy us. The jobs, the career, the holidays, the lifestyle, the material things, they are all empty. And they all addict us, don't we? Don't they? To want us to come back and ask for more and more and more again, hoping to be satisfied. But we'll never be satisfied because the only glory that can satisfy us is the thing that we're supposed to live for. The thing that points towards what we are supposed to live for. If you're traveling to a location and you see a signpost pointing towards your destination... You don't stop at the signpost thinking that you've arrived at your destination. You follow the sign to the destination. And that's what we see here. The glory that Jesus performs through the miracle. The voice that God is speaking to us through that miracle is pointing us towards His glory. The sign points to a destination. Hear this and hear it this big. Your spiritual 
destination is not physical creation. It's the creator. Your spiritual destination is not physical creation. It's the creator. And therefore, it would be remiss of us just now not to ask ourselves this question. What glory right now is commanding our hearts? We should be honest with ourselves. Is it the glory of financial success? Is it the glory of material possession? Is it the glory of affection and respect of certain people? Is it the glory of physical beauty and physical health? The glory of control, of influence, of power? You see, every one of those glories is ordained by God to be a finger pointing toward his majesty, pointing to his power, pointing to his dominion. Only God is able to satisfy that longing of our heart. And I'm sure that there are many of this room, in this room, like me, where our lives are lives at times of anxiety, where we're driven by emptiness, when we're confused and addicted to feeding our souls and our hearts with things that actually never satisfy, that are just a means to an end, but not an end in themselves. The commandment here is that we must hear God's voice, that we must put away the glory confusion that exists within our hearts. On one hand, it is proper to say, on this side of eternity, this is just one big glory war. And the glory that we seek to fill our hearts with will set our agenda for life. Two types of glory. The glory of God and sign glory. Everything else that has been made, well, it exists just as a finger pointing to God. That's what we hear God speak. Back to Psalm 29. We are hardwired for glory. We're then commanded to seek to live in light of that glory, the only glory that's truly glorious, to worship God for the glory that he is. Let's have a look at verses 3 through to 10. In here are an argument that only God is truly glorious, that we'll find God to be the very definition of what is glory. When you look at who he is, when you look at what he does, this this storm argument, it's a physical argument, but there are two things that David points to in his argument for the glory of God. First, there is the glory of his power. Let's look at the words here. Verse 3, the voice of the Lord echoes above the sea. The God of glory thunders. The Lord thunders over the mighty sea. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is majestic. The voice of the Lord splits the mighty cedars. The Lord shatters the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon's mountains skip like a calf. He makes Mount Tarmon leap like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord strikes with bolts of lightning. The voice of the Lord makes 
Barren wilderness quake, the voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. What a powerful description there is in these verses of the thunder and the lightning and the shaking of earth. Now think of this, that all of this, all of this is attributed to the voice of the Lord. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord spoke the world into being. The voice of the Lord speaks life into dead. He speaks spiritual life into us. The voice of the Lord reveals the deepest mysteries of the universe in this world. The voice of the Lord is powerful and it is glorious. And that phrase is used seven times through this psalm. And then the word Lord, the word that had to be shortened by the Hebrew for they were too afraid to say it, says it 18 times it uses the word Lord. Now the logic is here. If God is able to command the storm, if God is able to command all that is within that storm, then he is immeasurably greater than any power in the storm itself. When you thought back to that memory of that frightening storm, were you ever afraid That awesome display was not comparable to the power of the God who orchestrates that display. God is awesome in power. And second thing that David wants us to see through this text is that God is glorious in his rule. He says this, The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth and strips the forest bare. And all in his temple cry, glory. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits as king forever. What an amazing description, is it not? From the flood to the birth of a deer. David says, God is in intimate rulership over the world. This world hasn't just been set into a motion and it's going to just kind of tick along. No, absolutely not. This God sits as a king on his throne over the world and the world operates according to his command. That's glory, is it not? Think about it. Think how minuscule the world is that you and I actually command. How many things actually run under your ultimate command? It's a funny question, a humbling one. Concentrate on that list. You start with a longer list and then you realize that you're not actually in command of the things that you thought you were. That list becomes smaller and smaller. And sometimes it's hard for us to imagine and to accept it's actually God who is sovereign and we positively or not. And so for us, the psalmist says, rest is never in our power. It's never in our rule because we have such limited power and we have such limited rule. It's God's glory that we are to rest in, the glory of his power that he speaks, the glory of his rule that he speaks. We're hardwired For the glory of God. That's what he tells us. There is glory in of himself. Through his power and through his rule. But there's a third thing. That we see here. And that's the glory. Of his grace that he speaks. It's here in just a brief illusion in the psalm. But perhaps the most important aspect. 
The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth and strip the forest bare. But listen to this. And in his temple, all cry glory. In his temple, all cry glory. David summarizes one of the most amazing and glorious exercises of the power and rule of God in those few words. This God of awesome power, this God who orchestrates the storm, this God who brings the deer to life, who shakes the forest, who strips the trees bare, this this God of awesome power and awesome rule is a God of amazing grace. And he's exercised that power such that he has made it possible for himself to dwell in the middle of his people. What grace that this God of glory, that this God of glory would would choose to humble himself, to make himself in any way visible to us, to dwell in the temple that is the center of his people is something so amazing it's hard for our minds to capture. Why would God ever choose to come in his glory and to live in his temple? In the metaphorical center of society. We thought about this last Sunday night too with the attribute of God's wisdom as the, as the town crier uh, epitomized through the, the picture of the lady wisdom. God being at the center calling to us to see his glory. We can't read this psalm as New Testament believers and not reflect on the fact that glory has made us the temple in which he dwells. This is what he has spoken. John 17 records it as this. Father, the glory that you gave me, I now give to my children. We don't have to go anywhere to find glory. Because the glory of God, the glory of his power and his rule, the glory of his rest, the glory of his grace is found in us. Is that not an encouragement to us here this morning? Glory has found us because as God has spoken it so. We have been blessed with glory. Now reflect on me then how sad it is that when glory dwells within us, rests within us, that we attempt to push it out for other glories. We don't have to search for glory because if we're God's child, glory has found us. We're hardwired for glory. It's only in God that we will find glory that we seek because only God is truly glorious, glorious in his power, glorious in his rule, glorious in his grace. He gives us some practical instructions at the end. Look with me at verse 11. May the Lord give strength to his people. May the Lord bless his people with peace. When David speaks about strength here, he's not speaking about physical might. He's speaking about the fortitude of one's heart. He's talking about that inner courage and that inner resolve that is only possible when we come to understand 
that we have come to know the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings, this God of awesome power, this God of awesome rule, this God of awesome grace, who is now our Lord and has made us the place in which he dwells. We no longer need to approach life hoping that we can figure it out on our own accord because we've got enough wisdom from him. We have enough strength from him. Double down on the fortitude in your heart. We rest in the God who has made us the place where he dwells and we live with courage. Do we live with that courage? Do we live with that hope? Do we live with that strength of resolve? Or are we anxious, fearful, timid, unsure, perhaps insecure? Whose power gives us rest? Whose rule gives us hope? That strength is only found when we hear the glory of God as spoken to us through this psalm. May the Lord bless you with his peace. What is that peace? Was the calmness of heart, that rest of heart. Maybe that's the best way to say it. That inner sense of well-being that cannot be shaken by situations, locations, circumstances, trials. Listen, if situations can rob us of our peace, if other people can rob us of our peace, then our peace is probably not resting on God's glory. Do we have that inner peace? Do we have that security of heart? Do we walk around with that deep sense of well-being because we understand that God's glory has been given to us? That rule, that power, that grace is exercised for us on behalf of that King of glory. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, the whole earth is filled with his glory. Let us ask ourselves again that question as we close. Did we bask in that glory this week? Did it give us courage? Did it give us hope? Were we able to say we don't actually have a clue as to what's happening in our life, but it's okay? Because the God who is our hope knows everything. He rules everything. He has power over everything. And that God is a God of amazing grace. Please, friends, ask yourself this question as you go out into this week. What other glory will seduce me? What other glory will become a replacement for God's glory? What other glory will I look to to satisfy my heart? There is in our hearts a glory war. That war will continue to rage until he returns. If you're here today and you haven't put your trust in that glory, if you don't know the Lord as your saviour, as your friend, as the one who is powerful and all-ruling and all-knowing and all-merciful and all-gracious, then please can I encourage you to reflect on the one who commands the storm, to think about his promise that is contained herein. The Lord Jesus came not to reveal only the God of glory as he walked here on earth, 
but to free us from slavery to all those kinds of glory that we should reflect on to not seduce our heart this week. And he welcomes us to come to him, to confess our struggles, to find the forgiveness that can only be found in him. Let us encourage each other to do this next time we face a glory war. Do it next time you witness a storm. Watch the lightning. Feel the quiver in your heart as the thunder roars. Hear the sound of the driving rain and look to heaven and say, thank you, because I need to be reminded that at times I can be so blind to your glory and to your power. Step out into that rain and be drenched and let you say, may I never give my heart to any glory but yours. We're hardwired for glory. God is the definition of glory, both in his power and his rule. And he has given to us glorious grace. Let us remember that this morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray sincerely as we step out into this week, Lord, that our hearts would be tuned to be reminded of your glory. Father, I pray for myself that my own heart would look dimly at the other glories that tend to seduce me. That we would see your glory in creation, that we'd be reminded of your glory in the storms of life that rage around us. That we'd be reminded that you are above all and in all and through all. And Lord, that whilst this glory war rages, we pray that our eyes would look heavenward. That we'd be signposted to the God of glory who humbled himself to dwell within us who offered up his son as the very definition of grace. Lord, may we know that glory. May it be the glory that inhabits our hearts as we go out this week. In your precious son's name. Amen.